Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello and welcome back to uh, Watchman Talk, a series of conversations with Israel's uh, top experts in various uh, security and related fields. Our guest for a second part of our conversation is Dr. Uzi Rubin, uh, one of Israel's most prominent aeronautical engineers and uh, defense project managers with many successful programs, some known, some still deep undercover under his belt. Dr. Rubin, thank you for coming. Amir, it's a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, now, people use the uh, term rocket science uh, to mean something very complicated, something which the average person cannot start to understand. And uh, if that is true, uh, one can guess that the rocket against rocket science, developing a missile to hit a missile, is even more complicated. Is that so? Not really, (laughs) not really. Uh, An anti-missile missile is basically an anti-aircraft missile, which we have since the Second World War, except that it has to hit its target, a target which is much faster and moving in a steep direction instead of moving vertically, which creates, of course, an infinite number of problems that you have to solve. But the basic structure of the whole thing is uh, a branch of the anti-aircraft missile design. So let's go back um, uh, for a short history. As we remember, during uh, World War II, uh, there were bombers and fighters escorting them. But at the same time, the Germans mostly worked on their V-1 and V-2 rockets. And when the war ended, both the Americans and the Soviets scooped up the uh, scientists and engineers working on these projects and took them each to either Russia or the United States, to keep working on uh, missiles, whether short range, uh, longer range, and eventually intercontinental ballistic missiles, and submarine-launched missiles. And this became the uh, basis for deterrence, for weapons of mass destruction deterrence during the Cold War, which led the superpowers to curtail, to limit what they could do in anti-missile missiles, the so-called ABM treaty, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Um, That was a very strange example of technology being stopped because of strategic or political reasons. Um, How can you, you people of science, people of engineering, how uh, can you go along with such a decree from political authorities? Well, well, there was no decree like that in Israel. We were not uh, obliged by the ABM Treaty. Anyway, the ABM Treaty eventually uh, went away. But the logic of the ABM Treaty was, was clear enough. And it applies only to a nuclear threat when no defense is defense in this case. Even if you have 90% defense, it's not defense. You need 100% defense, and that's beyond the power of technology, even future technology. What uh, President Reagan uh, saw in front of his eyes in, when he said, uh, when he constituted Star Wars, which was not a program, it was a program, a research program, 
were technologies which were not available at that time and are not available today, probably not will really available in the, any future that you can see of. So, um, but it, but it, what Reagan did from 1983 on was to lead the Russians on uh, such a, an investment race, a budgetary race, which they couldn't catch up with the Americans. No, they, they, they despaired because they invested. Uh, uh, the Soviet Union was a poor country, masquerading as a superpower. It was, as they say, the, uh, a, third, uh, a third world country in Africa with a nuclear stockpile of uh, thousands of missiles and nuclear bomb. And uh, uh, they believed, when, when Reagan announced Star Wars, they believed him. They thought it was feasible if the United States president say. Now, it, look, it was very recent that the United States won the race to the moon, which they almost won. The, the Russians almost won it. And here the Americans overtook them within a decade. So the, at that time, their mood was that everything they say they can do, they, they are going to do, they will do. So they got frustrated. Their academic of science told the leadership that is impossible. What, what Reagan says, they didn't believe their own academy of science. And they saw before their eyes that all the investment that they put in their huge missile stockpile is going to hell. That but broke but you know, you, you um, uh, refer in your book, in your memoir, um, to uh, meetings you had with General uh, Jim Abramson, who was earlier the project manager for the F-16. And then, as a lieutenant general, was appointed uh, the uh, head of uh, Star Wars or, or uh, the Ballistic Missile uh, Defense Agency. Did he believe uh, it feasible? No, he was doubtful, but he thought that some of the technologies may be uh, perhaps uh, implemented. Obviously, at the time that he was the head, there was still no solution. And the whole billion of dollars that went into the program at this time was not in order to develop any, any system. It was to develop basic technologies and choose and pick between them which one will serve as the missile shield of the United States. So this was the triumph, really, of animation, of cartoons, because President Reagan believed the presentations, believed the animation of missiles being launched from the earth, meeting other missiles, he saw it before his eyes. That meant that it was technologically feasible. It's more, more, more complicated than that. What Reagan was convinced to the finance was space, space weapons, not missiles coming from the ground and interception. That was a different chapter. When he constituted the, the SDIO, the Strategic Defense Initiative, he charged it with defending the United States and its allies, each against the missiles threatening its... So the United States defense was against strategic Soviet nuclear missiles. But the allies were not threatened by nuclear missiles. They were threatened by regular missiles, like Israel. But now, now there is a treaty against space weapons being yes. used against other space objects. OK, but uh, that was the time that it was. Uh, there were some critic, critic about fighting in space. Uh, but still, there was, it was a research program that bore no fruit. But what was real about it, the only thing that was realized in this program was missile defense like Israel's. Because uh, part of the program was in order to address the threat on the allies. And General Abramson came to Israel and said, OK, uh, I've got money for you guys. If you want to defend yourself against the missiles that are threatening you, uh, let's go ahead. Come on and suggest some program. That's how uh, Israeli missile defense started. 
However, there was another problem, not an external one, an internal one, opposition by the Air Force. And uh, people who are used to uh, the makeup of the uh, American armed forces, for instance, know that over there, artillery, including air defense artillery, is the army, as, as is army aviation, helicopters. While in Israel, everything, including um, anti-aircraft and anti-missiles, is the Air Force. But the Air Force had an offensive doctrine. Yes, it's part of the Israel Defense Forces, but the doctrine is not to wait until you are attacked, not to invest too much in bunkers, in fences, in stuff which you cannot use to defeat your enemy, but to put all or most of your eggs in the offensive basket. So they resisted the idea of taking money out of fighter aircraft and putting it into anti-missile defense. Uh, or, Amir, it was even more complicated. That the basic the objection of the military, not just the Air Force, the general staff, against doing, dealing with missile defense first because they didn't recognize missiles as a threat. I, I, I dug up some old documents, uh, some researches from the 70s and the 80s, saying it's, it's not a threat. Okay, so they have some scuds. They could kill some Israelis, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not worth dealing with it at all. Not offensively, not defensively. Then came the Gulf War. The Gulf War convinced everyone. The Iran-Iraq War. The Iran-Iraq uh, Iran War. The War of not, the Cities. Not so much as the Gulf War, where Israel was hit by missiles. Now you couldn't argue that missiles are a threat. And then the, 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 the objection came to how to treat this. Then it came to what you are saying, how to deal with it, defensively or offensively. Therefore, said we can deal with everything offensively. No need to put money inside defensive. Well, that... Um, uh, the, the commander of the Air Force, uh, General Binun. Uh, Herzl, no. Herzl Bodinger, Herzl his, Bodinger his successor. told me privately, when they, they think that you can put a soccer team on the field without a goalie. He was, he was for the... He was for that. Uh, and he was for that. Before he became uh, commander of the Air Force, he asked for a private meeting with me, personal meeting, four eyes. He came to my office. He was still a brigadier general. said, I'm going to be the commander of the Air Force and I'm going to put missile defense on the agenda in the Air Force, because I'm all for it. Don't tell anyone, but that's what I'm going to do. So this is how the Aero program started, and uh, this was um, one of uh, the biggest chunks in your own uh, program management office at the Ministry of Defense when you were on loan. It was my concluding part, because after that I came of age and retired, you know. We had mandatory retirement at the time. Okay, so so um, we are now 30 years after Desert Storm. The, um, the threat which um, was supposed to bring about the Arrow program did not materialize. Yes, the missiles are still there um, in Iraq no longer, but in Iran and other places. And we will talk about what is happening in Lebanon and Gaza. But the idea that ballistic missiles coming from afar uh, with such a trajectory and such velocity that uh, you have to develop um, comparable defenses, this is still a threat which is yet to materialize. Yes, it's, it's a step. Well, it's, the threat is there. And the missiles are becoming bigger and better and more accurate. And they are sitting there, but they are not 
today, they are the, I'd say, the minor part of the threat. Because the Iranians' doctrine now is to develop uh, missile capability or rocket capability and eventually missile capability with all their allies in the Middle East and to uh, surround uh, each of their enemies with what's called the ring of fire. Like Saudi Arabia is now ringed by Iraq on one side and uh, Houthi Yemen on the other side. Israel is bracketed by the Gaza Palestinians and by the uh, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and perhaps the Hezbollah in Iraq too, perhaps in the future. And that idea is uh, to, to do its handoff. Let the allies, let the substitutes do it, not, not them the same. Dr. Rubin, let me ask a layman's question. But there is a reason for it. Where do you lo- draw the line between rockets and missiles? And if rockets are more primitive and less guided than missiles, are they more difficult to intercept? No, there is no difficulty to intercept. Uh, if we're talking about the range of a missile, whether it's the guided or unguided, uh, doesn't make much difference. You can shoot it down whether it's guided or So what is the difference unguided. between a rocket and a missile? Well, there are actually, I mean, these are just terms. Use. There is no Webster dictionary that would put anything which is ballistic is a ballistic missile. Even a rocket that flies freely is really technically a ballistic missile, except it's unguided. The question is asked because, because um, when Israel successfully defended its borders against uh, terrorist incursions by Palestinians mostly, they uh, moved back and started firing Katyusha rockets which were, of course, uh, quite common in World War II against military targets. You saw a barrage of rockets, um, Russian ones, of course, Katyusha, uh, little Katya is a Russian term, against a German armored concentration. And the terrorists uh, converted it for use against uh, civilian settlements. Yes. At that time, um, there was no um, concentrated effort by the Israel Defense Forces or the industry to intercept those? Again, it comes from two sources. First, the military saw no need for that. This is hitting civilian targets. Let the civilians go into shelters. And even Rabin said that. What you have to do in war is put the civilian shelters and fight the war. He didn't think at the time about defending against rockets. Also, let's admit it, technology was not ripe, not nature enough to do that. The problem is with the rocket, it's a short range, it resides short time in the air and time is everything here. A ballistic missile that comes from Iran will take about 12 to 15 minutes to reach Israel. 12 to 15 minutes in wartime is in finite time. Early warning, preparation. Yeah, when you're talking about rocket going to Beersheba for less than two minutes, now you have to do everything much faster. Fortunately, modern technology allows things to be done much faster. So technology had to catch up. When technology kept caught up and the threat became so difficult, like the Second Lebanon War, uh, became so obvious that uh, the, the machine was moved against much resistance. The military, I interviewed uh, Amir Peretz for the book, and he told the me defense the ministry in defense minister in 1912. Who, who started Iron Dome. And let's say that Barak continued, took over and continued enthusiastically. I have to give the credit to Barak too. Uh, he, 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 he encountered stiff resistance against the, the damage are small, this is civilian casualties. We should do with it uh, by, by passive defense. Don't spend money 
on, on active defense. But, but it is logical that if you have a limited budget, you must prioritize. Uh, you can't buy everything. Yes, uh, submarines are fine, fighter planes are fine, there are many other uses for money. And uh, you must uh, come up with a list and you cut it from the bottom. And for them, missile defense was near the bottom. Because they didn't realize the strategic effect of the missiles, of the rocket threat. This would became obviously only during Lebanon War II. 15 years ago. Only then, when all of a sudden they saw, everybody could see that, that two quarter of a million people ran away from the houses, life stops in the whole part, and this is done by simple rockets, except that there are many of the single ones, not the single one. They were thinking about the terms of single ones, two or threes or tens. When they come in the thousands, the, quality make, the quantity makes a different quality. So that became obvious. So this is a strategic threat, and it had to go up in the list of uh, uh, so let So let me bear witness to um, your prophetic idea two years before this war, in 2004, uh, when the uh, doctrine was, uh, according to the chief of the general staff of, at the time, General Yalon, let the rockets rust. Yes, Hezbollah does have thousands of rockets, now many more, many times more. But if there is no war, the rockets will rust and we don't have to uh, put too much effort into running after them or intercepting them. And you, in 2004, two years before the war, you came up with the idea of converting uh, a maritime anti-missile missile uh, intended to protect vessels where one hit of course, the barrack system could scuttle the the uh, uh, ship. You came up with the idea of coming up with a belt between the Mediterranean and the Jordanian border, which will protect the um, the northern part of Israel. Your estimate at the time was that it will take two years, exactly the same time, to build. And if your idea was accepted at the time perhaps the whole history would have been different. Let's, let's put things... While I was coming up with this idea, other people, not much stupider, don't came be, with other ideas. Don't be too modest on this show. We uh, want, we want uh, we, to I present was, the I, best practitioners. I wasn't aware of the efforts going in parallel in the R&D directorate in order to come up with a solution for rockets. I knew my own part of it. But there was a vast uh, effort at that time to define about 24 different solutions were select, were, were examined, including mine. And what came afterwards as Iron Dome uh, was selected as number one. My idea came in number three or four. I then went to the guy in charge, or the engineer in charge, and said, why did you select this particular one and not... Not exactly mine. I had several ideas. Other concepts. He said, because this is technology that we know, all the others... These technologies we have to invent. And I said, I said that as an engineer, I sat back and I said, you are 100% right. That's the thing to do it. Because of time and budget considerations. Time budget. Go, if you know how to do it, don't take the simpler solution or the, the more magic solution. Go, do, do, do what we are pressed to them, do whatever you know how to do. So 15 years later, and 10 years after the first successful intercept of Iron Dome in April of 2011, how can you sum up uh, this uh, program, Iron Dome? 
It was one of the most brilliant successes of Israel defense industry. Uh, vast effort, uh, the courtesy of Nasrallah, who really put the, <laughs> the juice inside us uh, for that. Very highly motivated. I was asked in the United States uh, whether the United States can do such a similar program on a shoestring budget in no time. And I said, yes, but only one. You can't do every program like that. There's only one and only in one in a decade because it eats all the resources of all the other programs. You do it only in an emergency. Which is what they have done with the Apollo program when they raised to more the moon. More or less, more or less. So, so um, uh, a 90% um, rate of success in intercepting missiles and rockets, uh, you see it as, as a very successful one. On, It's on successful, the... but not good enough. How can you improve on that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not in the business anymore, but I'm sure it can be improved. Two things must be improved, not in, only in our missile defense, in everyone's missile defense. Missile defense or missile warfare is basically an economic warfare. And today, still, offense costs more than defense. Still, because you have, in order to defend, you need all those sensors, whether this non-recurrent non uh, expenditures that you have invested in it, including the number of the, the recurrent ones, the, the, the missiles themselves, which are becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, and this you have to fight simple rockets, which are even cheaper. So you need two things. You have to improve your score, because even with 90%, when they double the rate of fire, they double the number of hits. So you need to increase your percentage, although 90% is good enough. And you need to decrease the cost of the recurring uh, expenditures, the, the cost of the intercept. And I fully believe that it can be done because modern technology, modern commercial technology is giving us more and more solutions. Look at this miracle. You, you think it's a smartphone? No, it's a guidance system for missiles, which is also a telephone. You can use actually this with a couple of wires coming out to guide missiles, UAVs or everything. It has everything in it. What we used to do in millions of dollars when I was a student my time or tens of thousands of dollars when I uh, retired can be today I cost, I paid for this $150 in a sale in the United States. This is the cost of guidance and control today. So with this drastic reduction because of commercial industry of uh, expensive components, I believe that interceptors can be made even cheaper than that. You bring up uh, an interesting point. Uh, now, uh, civilian uh, technology is the driver. It used to be the other way around, uh, not only in weapon systems, uh, in the internet and the other projects. But now um, the uh, military services had better wait for commercial enterprises uh, to come up uh, with creative solutions. In wherever, wherever, the, wherever technology drives, uh, demand of the market drives forward uh, commercial. Not uh, commercial technology doesn't answer some problems like armor. They don't deal with armor, not yet, for example. But uh, in some other uh, areas, like uh, as I said, guidance and control, commercial technology is becoming cheaper and cheaper. What about um, the offensive uh, part, the boost phase intercept? Because Air Forces also uh, suggested, rather than wait for the missile to hit, let's go above the launcher. Yeah, we, 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 we put a lot of thought into that. Just technically, it's feasible. 
you're talking about system that you uh, let them cross the border before the war and wait for the missile to come out, technically it's manageable. But there is a political problem here, because once you cross the border, you start the war. So, and the idea that you can have some kind of a UAV which is invisible, well, it can be invisible for a while, but you cannot loiter above an enemy for so days and days. So if you are going to preempt, preempt, don't wait for the yeah, missiles, so hit the launchers. And then the, the logic of boost phase loses uh, what, logic. What about laser? Nautilus was one project. Lasers, uh, lasers have this uh, beautiful, t- beautiful uh, attraction that... Uh, the cost of kill is very low. However, they suffer, and any kind of laser, whether it's chemical or electrical, suffer from two drawbacks. First, uh, it's a low rate of fire. It's not like in the movie Star Wars when you, you know, you shoot at the... Ray gun. Uh, yeah, you, you, you shoot at the enemy and he, and he boof, explodes. No, no, you have to cook the target. And it takes time to cook the target. While you cook the target, all the other targets continue on. And then you take the simple calculation. Do you look at the huge uh, salvos like they fired two weeks ago, three weeks ago, 150 missiles at a time. What a laser could do, a single laser could do, do nothing. Scratch the temp, fire, shoot down two or three of them. Not like Iron Dome, because Iron Dome is fired simultaneously. Every, every miss, uh, interceptor has an address already when it comes out of the... And the other drawback is weather for... The other drawback is weather. So lasers can only support uh, missile systems. It cannot replace missile systems. I know that this causes aggravation to many of the laser uh, aficionados, but unfortunately, until something is invented, this is uh, the... the, the Dr. Rosie Rubin, um, a final thought. Um, Is Israel um, equipped with the right cadre of young, bright scientists and engineering in the defense industries, or are they all or mostly going civilian now? I really don't know. Uh, I, I encounter a lot of young, enthusiastic uh, uh, graduate engineers. I also uh, visit the Technion from time to time, the, uh, the Department of Aeronautical, some faculty of aeronautical engineering. It's gone up. I'm a donator, so I appear there once a year to donate. And I see a lot of bright young engineers. I give a prize and I see what a prize are given for, what ideas there. The ingenuity is there, the brightness is there, the enthusiasm is there. And I hope that uh, Israel will uh, use that to the good benefit of the defense of the country. So you do see a bright future for the state of Israel? Well, yes. For the state of Israel, yes. I see a lot of difficulties at a bright future. Dr. Uzi Rubin, um Mr. Missile Defense, um, and now uh, retired, but still um, up to speed on these uh, programs and innovations. Thank you very much for taking part in our conversations. Thank you, Amir. It was a pleasure and uh, hope to see you again. And we hope to see your book in English, too. I hope to. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.